runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 902, Large Language Models for IT Pros with guest Seth Juarez. Recorded Monday, September 18th, 2023. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts, LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Hi, this is Richard Campbell. Thanks for listening to Run As Radio, bringing back a dear friend of mine after entirely too long. Seth Juarez is a principal program manager in the Azure AI platform. He received a bachelor's degree in computer science at University of Las Vegas with a minor in mathematics, completed his master's degree at the University of Utah in computing science, and he is focused on artificial intelligence, specifically the realm of machine learning, and he works in the, he works on a .NET library meant to simplify the usage of common machine learning algorithms. Welcome back, friend. How's it going, my friend? Uh, you know, no rest for the wicked, but only working on cool things. How's that? That is true. Same here. Uh, it's 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 been a while, but there's a lot that's happened in the realm of AI. You know, I was I was thinking about the first thing we did. Yeah, it was a .NET Rocks. I think it was almost it was more than a decade ago. More than a decade ago. Yeah, for sure. Are you with Mark Miller doing the? Uh, there was you and Mark Miller doing the Connect. Mm-hmm. Could keyboard thing but we talked about your library numel as i recall yeah new ml i haven't played with it in a while um but yeah it was it was like the scikit learn for net before scikit learn i think even existed yeah yeah no no question that's the thing is like you were doing ai before ai was cool but i am deeply opposed to the term artificial intelligence now because more and more it's being misused and i hate to contribute to that Really, the way I'm describing it now is like, listen, artificial intelligence is what you call a technology when it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. When it does work, it will get a new name. It'll be called image recognition or text transcription or large language models. Like, as long as it doesn't work, it's AI. So when you use that term, it's like, okay, so you're talking about stuff that doesn't work. Yeah, I'm wholesale against... the anthropomorphization. Oh, man. I just made that a huge word. It's a good word. Uh, anthropomorphization of anything AI related, primarily because it's irresponsible for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first reason is it because it imbues these models with uh, neither, it imbues these models with humanity that it neither aspires to nor actually has. That's right. the first thing. And the second and probably more insidious, and I'm trying to use big words because obviously people are listening, mm. and I want it to be like a colorful plethora of, of words here. The more insidious thing about anthropomorphizing these models is that it shifts the responsibility in an undue fashion right? so that people could say reliably, well, it's thinking this way, therefore right. it must be okay. But the responsibility actually lies with the human that trained these models. So those are two very powerful reasons against anthropomorphizing these models. Number one, they have no humanity in them whatsoever. Number two, uh, if we give them that humanity, we are giving them agency that they should not have. Right, right. And science fiction has not helped between Hal, Terminator, and Jarvis, like... It has not helped. Yeah. And, that, and that's why I'm just avoiding the term like the plague right now. But, you know, here we are talking to sysadmins today, and I know they're being inundated with questions about 
how everything's going to change, how, you know, jobs are going to disappear, like all of this kind of insanity. You're actually a professional in this space. And obviously you work for a company that's been a part of a bunch of these recent uh, breakthroughs. I don't, I'm not going to deny the breakthroughs. How do you even talk to this when, when leadership's coming at you about, uh, about the potential of these technologies? So I'll start first with the most important thing that probably has the most folks up in arms, this notion of, of losing jobs, right? Uh, the lead losing jobs to, uh, to automation has been in every single newspaper, every single decade since the 1890s. Mm. Uh, mm. And so uh, from the Luddites on it. upward, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. To the, probably the horseshoe makers during the, the Ford era, yeah. et cetera. But, but this, this is true. Like we have had to adjust uh, as a humanity, as a new technology has been introduced from, from, you know, farming all the way to the latest AI breakthroughs. It has changed the way humans have behaved, but it hasn't eliminated jobs. It's repurposed our ability to do things like, for example, the shovel person uh, learned how to drive a tractor. And sure. now, now all of a sudden they were more, uh, they were able to do more work, you know, better, et cetera. And so it's, just, it's no different with information work. Uh, we've been using shovels and information work for a long time. And I think uh, these new uh, class of models are going to help us move the shovel into the tractor realm in information work. And so that's the first way to think about it. I love the I love the tractor metaphor because it also says, and you can make a heck of a mess with it too. It's true. Like it does take skill to operate it. A hundred percent. Because a lot of people, and here's the thing um, that that most people worry about, like, well, we're not going to need programmers. And my sense is that no, you're probably going to need more skilled programmers, mm. but they're going to move from doing creative work to more editing work. Right. And notice that that editors. That's a very important skill that does not deny their specific abilities in that area. Mm -hmm. If you do not know the area, you are not going to be able to edit well. Yeah, yeah. And it's same for programmers. Yeah, you have to have a certain level of comprehension to have any ability to modify that. On the other hand, I know lots of people, and I would put myself in this camp too, that staring at the blank screen is way harder oh, yeah. than editing code in front of you. 100%. So, you know, this this idea that I could take a tool like GitHub Copilot and describe a PowerShell task, for example, and have it spit it about a bunch of PowerShell at me, and then to really sit down and read it and say, what has, what is it generated? Is this even, I mean, the nice thing about something like PowerShell is like the compiler gets a say. If it won't run, it won't run. Like that's yeah. useful, but it's all, you're still ultimately responsible. By the way, the name Copilot, I'm not used to Microsoft nailing a name. And arguably they didn't. It was GitHub, wasn't it? But it was Martin Woodward. Yeah. It's such a perfect name because it's it perfect. does put the responsibility back to the person, not the software. And that's the, that's the, like, I love that name for all of this. But like you said, it, if you think about like the shovel work and information, mm -hmm. uh, it's the blank page problem that is being solved because everyone's an awesome critic. Uh, but creating is harder yeah. and it turns out that you're going to have this situation where these particular in particular generative models, which are the, the hot topic nowadays are going to be able to generate your best first draft and then you'll be able to edit as you go. And that, I think that's like going from the shovel to the tractor. But if you don't know how to use a tractor, 
you're, you might make a mess, just like you suggested. Mm-hmm. And so that's a good way to think about it, I think. Yeah, and so it is isn't definitely an, an automation tool and an empowering tool. It's just a question of can, do you, what do you got to do to get skilled with it uh, in the first place? 100%. Yeah, and so the, the other thing that's important is these tools that are built, they're already built, but someone might think, well, what will those tools look like for someone like me? Like, let's just say you're a sysop or you're, you're, you, you help, you know, cause your audience does a, a lot of the work that I'm a, I'm a programmer, right? Mm-hmm. I just expected my stuff to work, but I knew that there was a lot of work that went into my, what does that look like for someone like them? And I think understanding the technology at a fundamental level helps folks understand what kind of tools can be w- built with them at the moment and then calibrate to things that move to the future. Because I think that's, that's the important part. Well, there's a lot of unicorn horn dust that's been sprayed over this stuff <laughs> that makes it a little untenable to, to fathom. Like what is it that it's actually doing? But it's actually quite simple to understand what these models, specifically GBT uh, generative P train transformer models do. And once you understand that and you understand how they're trained, then it makes it makes sense why they're so revolutionary, and also it makes uh, it brings a lot of clarity to what you can do with them. I like this. So you're about to take the magic out of this current generation of technology. Talk to me about how this works. Why is it able to generate code as, when I describe the code I want generated? So let's just talk about language models in general. The mm-hmm. generative P-train transformer models, the, the particular innovation that has made them more interesting is these, this notion of a thing called a transformer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, now think about this. Uh, machine learning is an interesting thing because it, 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 I know I say it writes algorithms for you, but it doesn't. You kind of choose a structure of a thing and then you optimize that thing so it spits out the right thing. So I'll give you an example of a silly machine learning algorithm. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, you have, I don't know, features about that particular thing. All you need to do is you need to find a way to mathematically represent a function that given a new person, it'll say, will they show up or not? Right. So that's like early, that's like early, you know, uh, 2000s um, or maybe even before that machine learning, like a logistic regression or something we learned um uh, in math school all the time, which is a, a, a linear regression. You've right. heard that. That's mm-hmm. a machine learning algorithm, uh, a, for example, that you give it an X and it produces a Y. So imagine now you want to do that with language. Uh, this becomes a, a harder problem because humans can't even decide how to talk, number one. Number two, when we do talk, it's not even clear that we understand each other. <laughs> and then number three, uh, the language that we use, even like in a in, in the tone could could change and so like that's difficult to do in in the written form right so there came this notion of like well what if we build models that sort of chain off each other so that we can predict the next words and those models were okay right like lstms and rnns the problem is that they relied on like feed forward information so it only got information from like the last word to the next word and they were pretty good the bigger you made them but the transformers what they did is they allowed the machine to create mathematical models over every single word and how they interacted with one another. And you could put like eight transformers onto a sentence. So these things were like creating these mathematical models of how words were related to each other and what was going on. And the task became simple. Given a fixed amount of words or tokens, because they're broken up to make the vocabulary size smaller, given a fixed amount of words, can we predict reliably what the next word is? And that's it. 
That's the entire task. I got the sense that the tokenization part was really important to the equation, too, that it's really predicting token to token, and that those are yes. then transformed back into words. Correct. It's just just think of like a think of like a and uh, you have a big index, like you have a, a text file with every single w- token in the vocabulary. Right. And then when it's like, oh, I see this token that's on the fifth line. I'm going to look up the fifth vector that represents that thing, and then you push that through the model, and it learns those those vectors. These, they're called embeddings. And I really appreciate this because it's so totally different from the way humans learn language. Oh, yeah. Right? That, that we're not, we don't build up a set of understanding of language. We literally just gave it a set, a, this massive pile of numbers. And it's, computers are pretty good at munging numbers. Mm-hmm. Hilarious that, of course, that the, that the GPT models are terrible at math. While also, you oh. know, funnily munging numbers. <laughs> yeah, but the thing about it is, is if you think about it, there is no reason why it would ever be good at math. It's a language model. <laughs> it's a language model, of course. Like, stay away from that part. And that's the thing. It's like, once you understand that, it's like, oh, it all it really wants to do, using linear algebra and calculus, because it's optimized, it really wants to return the next best token. Right. And it only returns one. And and this is the this is the thing people don't understand. And they're like, well, wait a minute, Seth. When I'm talking to ChatGPT, it's like typing at me. It's not typing. Mm-hmm. It's running each one in a loop and taking the last token it saw and putting it into the pile and then predicting again. Right. And so it's like a little Pez dispenser of tokens that keeps putting the last thing you said back at the front and then and then it, it spits it out. So that's why it looks like it's typing. It's not. It's just loop. Yeah, loop and then running the model. token, loop token, loop token, yeah. and sometimes the token is a word, sometimes it's a few words. Like it, it's funny how the tokenization things work. It, it, so I'll give you an example mm-hmm. because the, you want to make sure the vocabulary size is is not infinite. Right. What you do is like, for example, uh, the word uh, um, I don't know, shirt mm-hmm. could be a token. The word shirts apostrophe s you could split that into two tokens right because now the apostrophe s could be added to any other thing sure and that way instead of having to have one for each one that has an apostrophe s you can have the single token and then another token and so it breaks it up in a way to make it more economical in terms of how much you're storing in terms of embeddings right right and so the the concept of a possessive stands on its own as a, as a token so it can be applied to lots of different things Correct. And if you're wondering, you can you can uh, Google with Bing, you know, open AI tokenization mm-hmm. and type in sentences and you can see how it tokenizes it. Right. And you can see they even colorize it for you to see where it's breaking words apart. But I think the GPT-35 Turbo has roughly 53,000 uh, in terms of vocabulary size. Wow. I, most people don't have 53,000 words. I, I find myself pretty wordy and Grammarly tells me I use like 2,000 different words in a week. And but I, having and, said that, remember <laughs> that it's multilingual and even right. includes uh, it even includes Unicode like emojis. Oh, that's crazy! Well, and it, and programming languages too, right? Like the fact that it spits yeah. out code to me is kind of stunning because that's funny language at the best of times. It, but 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 again, to be clear, uh, these things all become language tokens, right? And because the the model was fine tuned on the language of programming. That's what it's good at. It doesn't mean that it's a good programmer. No. It just means it has a sense for what these things should look like when mm-hmm. it's done. That's fascinating. And Seth, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past two years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Sometimes an employee's device gets hacked because of unpatched software. 
Sometimes an employee leaves sensitive data in an unsecured place. And it seems like every day a hacker breaks in using credentials they fished from an employee. The problem here isn't your end users. It's the solutions that are supposed to prevent these breaches. But it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, fished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every operating system, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for IT. The good news is you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and they ensure that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. Visit collide.com slash runasradio to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash runasradio. And we're back. It's Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Seth Juarez. We're talking a little bit about how these large language models actually work and really getting into the shape of how we push back on leadership as they're saying, where do we apply these things? Because, I mean, we've laughed about how bad it is at math, but like I said, it's good at language. Like, the creative work seems to be the place. Like, when you want to stimulate ideas for new code, new writing... I found it stunningly good at writing corporate speak for tell this pe- person to bugger off. Yeah. Like when I'm annoyed at, at an email, I can paste in that email, you know, to chat GPT and say, how do I tell this person to take a hike in a, in a corporate way? And it just spews beautiful, horrible, you know, corporate jargon back. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing that it is very, very good at language. But, but the problem becomes this. Uh, notice, l- let me explain how it was trained so mm-hmm. that you can get a sense for what's going on. It turns out that the, the model size actually really matters because GPT-2 was okay. And there were multiple sizes of GPT-2, as I recall, back in the day. Yeah, but when it, when we got into GPT-3 and 3.5, something magical happened that the number of parameters, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but you can see there's, I feel like it was an order of magnitude increase in yeah. the size of the parameters. Uh, and what happened was, all of a sudden, it started doing some amazing things. So let me explain how it was trained, and let me tell you what I think is going on. It may not be true, but this is the way my mental model works. And mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm the kind of guy that likes to be dogmatic so people can have clarity in knowing what I'm thinking. But then when they're like, hey, Seth, have you thought about this? Oh, no, I haven't. I need to update my mental model. It's much right. better that way. Uh, so um, the way you train these things, and when I say I'm going to say we train these things like the Packers, like we won the game on Sunday. (laughs) When we train these things, we basically fed it the internet. And the reality is that what most people don't understand is that these models have a finite input space. So uh, the GPT-35 Turbo has a 4,000 token input limit. And that's because that's however many tokens it can take uh, to return the next token. Right. And so what happened is you get the internet. You get 4,000 tokens. We know what the next token is. You feed that thing through the model. Out comes a, uh, like a big old vector that's 53,000 plus long that gives you a probability distribution of which should be the next token. So, for example, it, it should be this one at, at 25%. It should be that one at 10%, whatever. Right. But it's very flattened. We actually know the answer. Uh, if you're feeding it the internet, because we know what the next token is. So we look at the, the vector of the right answer, which has a one in the token it should get next, because mm-hmm. that's what it said on the internet. And the reality is once you have once you have the right answer and the answer that it proves, you can create something called the loss function. And all a loss function says is, what if we subtract the truth from what the model came up? You want that to be zero. 
Because if it's zero, that means you got it exactly right. Hmm. It means you have zero loss. And what happens is now, with it, because we have a function over this thing, you can square it. And the reason why you square it uh, is because it makes it easier for calculus to figure out. You square the loss, you take the first derivative, set it equal to zero, and then you process the entire internet forward. And there's an interesting thing that happens when you take derivatives. There's derivatives, and if you don't know what, what a derivative is, it's, it's just the slope of a function. When you take the derivative of a ginormous function, it's the derivative of the outer function times the derivative of the inner function. And this function's huge. So as you as you push as you push the 4,000 tokens forward, the token that it thinks comes out, what you do is you take the subtraction and then you take the derivatives and it goes all the way back down. That's why it's called the, the uh, back propagation algorithm. Right. Basically, this is how all these things are done. It's pushing forward to get the answer. It's pushing backwards to update the weights. And this takes a couple of weeks and a lot of machines and a lot of money right uh to do this huge amounts uh, and so now and so now what's probably happened is that because it's been we've fed at the internet again we like the packers uh we've fed at the internet and when you say the internet like there are parts of the internet i don't think i want it to be fed agree like i could think i could think of some fairly horrible parts of internet i've seen over the years it's like don't you know disagree. yeah and, uh, and, and of so course this is where we get into the copyright conversation too right it's like yeah. what did you train the set on Mm -hmm. You say the internet, but it's a big place. And I can't yeah, imagine it was all of it. I don't think it was all of it. Mm -hmm. I think it was, I say the internet, you know, like the same way I say we did it, you know, yeah. it, it's some subset of it. And I don't know what the data set is, but there's some papers out there on like what data sets were used. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that the model at the size of GBD3 for sure learned syntax, for sure learned semantics, mm -hmm. and probably started memorizing some stuff. You know, uh, and you're using anthropomorphic words again. Uh, when I say learned, I mean it, it primarily in the machine learning stochastic way of, right. of learning. As because there's a there's a way. For example, there's something called a pack learning theory mm -hmm. uh, about how to probably approximately correctly learn a thing. And and so when I say learn, I mean it strictly in the mathematical sense. Right. Okay. Uh, and so I so thank you for calling me out on that. But I don't mean like learn like it sat there with a book reading the internet. It's like, oh, I learned, <laughs> I learned how to write nasty emails in a corporate way. There you know, you that's go. not what it did. It basically learned weights to multiply these input vectors by in order to get the right output. To get us well, and again, right output, well, an output of positive weight, right? <laughs> yeah, and the, by right, I mean it. it, it right to mathematically means. Since we know the input 4,000 tokens and mm -hmm. we know the output token based upon the data set, that's the right answer mathematically. It's not the right answer from a human perspective. No. Someone could be spewing blatherskite and that's what it learned. Yeah, yeah, of course. And again, it's what did you train it on? And, it, and it, fundamentally, it says this is all derivative work. It trained again. First, people created stuff on the internet. Then the model was trained on it. So it's invariably going to be a derivative work. But then one would argue, most things are derivative work. Mm -hmm. You know, there's very few truly original things ever made. And arguably, when I'm trying to figure out a PowerShell script for an onboarding problem to Active Directory, I don't want original work. I want reliable. Yeah, correct. You know, I kind of want known uh, stuff. Yeah, and but invariably, the problem here is if you trust the model, and I'm going to say the naked model, just because it just people are like listening all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. If you use the model without any priming. 
it's it really wants to create language for you. Wow. And so, for example, when when you hear about like we changed the temperature of the model to make it more creative, all it literally means is that you're varying distribution on the output vector so that other things are more more likely than the other things. And so it, no, notice it's not being more creative. You're just changing the probability distribution of the thing that's output. And if you're a statistician, we all know it's not a probability distribution. It's just a function over it to make it look like it is because it just forces it to sum to one. So, And then we borrow the word temperature to say that's how, you know, the, as a way to measure how we changed it. There's probably a mathematical reason for that. Yeah, yeah. But basically you are, you are taking a number between zero and one and you're you're warping the output distribution to make it return tokens that maybe it wouldn't have, but are still close enough. Right. Okay. Was there more from there? Because wasn't there a second order set of training to try and get it to respond better, where there was actually people with prompts and and doing voting? Yes. Once you have that model, uh, that's generally the the models you have. Uh, if you want to do more, there there is something called fine tuning. Mm. Um, and so, uh, there is a, there is a process called LORA or multi-LORA fine tune approach to these things. LORA stands for a low rank approximation. There's a bunch of matrices in there. And if anyone's familiar with linear algebra, you can do low rank approximations of larger matrices, which means you can make a matrix that is smaller in size that represents the same linear transformations. Right. So what they did is they 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 came up with this thing called reinforcement learning with human feedback where they where they got where, where they're basically updating the model but a low rank version of the model with feedback of people that said we like this output versus this output right. this output versus this output and what they did what they did is they ranked the outputs like you would in chess and they made the model regular they made the model use those things to update the answers, right, that it was giving. But the problem is, is they found that this thing was kind of going off the deep end, and so they regularized it against the old model, and regularization means you add a penalty if it moves too far away. And hmm. so it's like it's like holding a bulldog with a rope as it's searching for better pastures, right, <laughs> uh, to find... And, and so th that's what it's done. It's, it's unclear to me if if there's a lot of benefit. My sense is that uh, if you have very specific terms that never show up, like let's just say you're the new Flubarg company right. that invented some flow bars and some blue barps, <laughs> notice that's not common language and using them, using them may be more useful. But I would suggest that you would get more juice from the squeeze of affecting the model through the prompt. Interesting. Before so, so, you would for fine tuning. So writing, yeah, writing better better prompts in the first place. Now that we know that the input prompt will directly affect the output, mm -hmm. the programming task therefore becomes putting the right things into the prompt in such a way that the likelihood of a good answer is returned. Right. Is is increased is returned. That's going to make your bait. You know, if there's any one thing you want to learn, it's get into writing great prompts if you want to take advantage of these tools. And now that you think about it that way, mm -hmm. this thing basically becomes a giant language calculator. Right. This is why I don't like the term hallucination. Oh, yes. I think immediately it's an anthropomorphic term. It's people have hallucinations. Software shouldn't. Exactly. Uh, hallucination, generally people take it to mean as it's making stuff up. Right. Lies the or really bugs. <laughs> 
but the thing about the thing, the funny thing about lies is that in order for a thing to be a lie is you have to know the truth. Right. There's no intent here. It's software. No, it doesn't know anything. So <laughs> all it's, if you, if you want to be completely clear, and this is again, my opinion, mm-hmm. if you're, if hallucination means it makes things up, then it's always hallucinating. It's nothing but a hallucination. Exactly. You know, there's an area of philosophy that says that all of consciousness is, is a set of hallucinations, a set of agreed upon hallucinations, but let's not go there. Don't disagree. Now, <laughs> having said that, Having said that, if we treat this thing, like I said earlier, like a giant language calculator, right. the job therefore becomes, well, put the right paragraphs into the prompt mm-hmm. so that it forces the right answer to yeah. come out. Interesting. And that pattern became so established that it's called RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that it actually works. And if you treat this thing like a giant language calculator, you can test the information you put in. You can test the information that comes out, right. and you can even monitor to make sure that it's n- not that it's telling the truth, but because this is a better term, that the answers are more grounded in the facts that you've given it. Right, and that's important. Okay, and it, I mean, in general, we don't count on the software to produce facts at all. We pre- we count on it to produce language. Correct. It's, it doesn't do math and it doesn't do facts. It does language. So if the language you get out isn't useful, it's because you didn't prompt it effectively. Exactly. And that's the, the observation that we, at Microsoft, we came, not, I don't know if we came up with it, but we used very well in Bing Chat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you think about Bing Chat, Bing Chat is basically you type something into it we create a prompt, we retrieve things from a search, mm-hmm. put a bunch of paragraphs in there and say, add this up for this good user. Right. And that's what comes out. With foot, with, and I adore the footnotes. It's like, and this yes. is where I got it from, right? So there's at least sourcing yeah. attached to it too. And that sourcing comes from search. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, you could make one of these. Obviously, the Bing one, uh, we tested on the world, and so the prompt is actually quite good. Right. And the safety sections are quite good. Um, and so the reality is, if you want to build an application that's useful, and you're a sysadmin, what is the question you always get? Like, let's just say you're an IT pro. What are the, the fires that you are always fighting on behalf of other users that maybe you could automate? Right. Well, Think about this. As an IT pro, you might have a knowledge base of things. Yep. You could say, just talk to the talk to my assistant, which is the LLM. What you do as a programmer is when a question comes in, you search that knowledge base that you have institutionally, put those snippets into the prompt, and then say, hey, you are an IT administrator who helps people solve their IT problems. Mm-hmm. Here's the, what you know. Uh, if they ask about anything else, don't answer. Boom. You right. basically built your own personal assistant to solve the issues that you generally have at your at your place. And notice that that's actually a good thing. Sure. Because if if you had, I don't know how many times you've had to tell you know Bill to turn it, try turning it off and on again, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, all that tier one tech support, and we've been playing with fact bots for a while before large language models came along. But fact box weren't that good. Like you had to get the language exactly right. If there's anything the LLMs have brought in is that you can generally express all things in a lot of different ways and get to reasonable results. Yeah, uh, there's a, a, a dumb example I do when I show this stuff to to executives is I talk I'd like do the Eurovision Song Contest mm-hmm. 
I tell it it's an it's a expert in the Eurovision Song Contest, and I said, "Who won the first ESC?" You and me were like, "ESC, what's that?" Oh, Eurovision Song Contest. We make that leap pretty quickly, right? But there was a whole field of inquiry because I did computational linguistics. <laughs> there was a whole field. There were many a PhDs given over named entity recognition and co-reference resolution just for that problem that now the LM has no problem just nails dealing with it all so yeah because it does it because it knows stuff stuff that used to be high science is naturally derived from the way we've built these tokenized generative models 100% so and I, and I appreciate this Seth because I think a lot of folks have been listening to the thing and we've been awfully critical at the same time, it's like they—you've just described. This is something that's been stunningly hard, and LLMs nail it. Oh yeah, but they don't do no. other things. So you know, stop trying to fly a bike. It's not a good idea. And the thing is, is that like, and when I speak, when I speak about like, I'm speaking about the LLMs that are currently available. Right. Currently available. There's this term that I like. Uh, I need to write it down somewhere so people could use it because it, 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 I think, it encapsulates. There is this notion of agency, mm-hmm. like how much agency are you giving these models? Like, for example, the plugin model, which I'm not a huge fan of uh, for these uh, open AI models. Right. Basically, the plugin model, what it does is uh, if you've ever looked at the JSON manifest of these plugins, it says, this is what I do. Effectively, when you use plugins in OpenAI, it injects the manifest of the plugin into the prompt and right. asks the LLM to decide which one to execute. That notice that that's giving uh, the 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 LLM a, a modicum of agency that makes me feel uncomfortable. Sure, sure, totally. My sense is that is anytime you're going to give a, an AI model agency, you need to have some pretty strong evaluation harnesses that can be done both at testing time and also at inference time, which is right. means when it's in production. And so the term agency is is important because. That's why I love the term co-pilot because ultimate agency resides with the human every time while the co-pilot is, is making decisions and saying, is this right? Um, yeah. Or at least making suggestions, right? It's just presenting ideas that you ultimately execute on. I've been waiting to see more on security co-pilot. I like the idea of it because most of us don't do security full time. So it's useful to have a tool that would help guide us down useful paths for making systems more secure. It's just the same scary problem. Like I can't afford it to make serious errors there either. So it's got to make suggestions and have some way for me to verify them before I move forward on them. Yeah. And having said that, you can take these models and fine tune them Mm -hmm. to the language of a particular task, like we were talking about earlier. And so in theory, you can make these models do more. Mm-hmm. For example, there is a new uh, there is a new uh, paradigm called function calling. For example, in OpenAI, where not only do you give it like the prompt, but you give it like a set of functions that it could call. And so what it does is it returns not just the answer that you want, obviously the completion, but it says here's a function you could call, and here's how I would fill it out. Notice that that's a little different than the model having complete agency, Yes. but you're giving it the opportunity to look at a bunch of functions and decide which one to call and with what parameters, and that's actually quite useful, and it's been trained to operate that way. So there, it's not out of the realm of, of, of possibility to have these models, for example, with language, learn how to do certain things that may be surprising to us today. Right. But again, it's a language model. And certainly useful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's exciting. 
as 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 all as well as somewhat threatening and confusing too, because it's is it does seem totally hyped out of proportion. Like I don't, I mean, this has got to be all all of that you know Jarvis uh, Hal stuff. Like people grab science fiction and say, oh, it's here now, let's go. But here's here's the insane thing. Like I, you look at things like like uh, Jarvis, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, that's insane. But I could actually, with these LLMs now, make one that's actually useful. I could have it talk to me. Right. I don't know. The robot, the robotic hand thing is a little hard. And to be honest, I can have it talk to me like with my voice. Sure. Um, sure. And so how would I build one of these things? Well, I would use something like uh, 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 Bing has a the co-pilot for Bing or the Bing chat. Mm-hmm. I could ask through my microphone a question. I can have an app that's ready. Open it up. It will open it up. It can take my ta- my voice, change it to text, do a search, use a rag pattern uh, to fetch information, and then I can also give it functions so that it can decide like if it, I'm asking it to do something. And then the output can come back and say, "Hey, I, I'm thinking you want to do this. Is that would you would you like to do that? Yes." And then notice that I can build something like that. Right. Um. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility. However. Notice that these things have no agency, right. only insofar as we give it to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's the—I think it's the—it's the future, right? That's the way we're going to do things. Is you—you you don't just hand it agency. You have to actually do a lot of work to give it agency in the first place. It is yes. making suggestions. I look at the image recognition systems for things like radiologists. You know, the radiologist is still making the call on what was on that image as far as a tumor and so forth. But the software helps guide the eye, you know, yeah. save the radiologist's time of assessing different parts of that image. Like, And this would apply equally as well for us. Like, again, I go back to the security co-pilot and say, hey, if there was a tool that would look through my infrastructure and point out areas of potential risk and and even present some suggestions on it, that just saves me time. But it takes no agency at all. It's up to me to decide the action from there. And and that's important. But unfortunately, the society we live in, sometimes we want, like even even me, I just wish it would just be done on my behalf. Oh, yeah. We need to be careful there. No, the, the best thing of all is say, hey, we need to lock this firewall down. And just like, where's the big red button? Do it. You know, damn the consequences. But that that's not the life we live, I'm afraid. Yeah, and that's a, that's the fear I have, that the big red button, the agency to use the big red button will be moved into automated systems. Yeah, I agree. In a way that could harm people. Yeah. Uh, and not, I'm not talking about, like, death or whatever. I'm talking – there's certain harms that no one's excited to talk about. Like, for example, like, let's just say policing. Yeah. Uh, here's an example of a harm, you know. Well, we took all race out of uh, the people we put in our machine learning algorithm. But did you leave the zip code in there? Yeah, we did. Well, turns out that it has racial bias as well. Zip code is a good is a good proxy for race yeah, sometimes. And, uh, so, um, and that's like a that's a harm of allocation uh, or a harm of access. Th- those are the boring things that that the overblown you know skeptics talk about. But but the, and these are the arguments we were having ten years ago as this new machine learning models were emerging. We were dealing with bias and data. I'm delighted that we're still talking about it. That fundamentally, this is not that different from what they were doing back then. And the quality of the data matters. And then you trained a language model on the internet. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> the thing about it is, like, it, it, it sounds like a bad idea. Uh, but the reality is that it learned enough language that if you ground the thing properly, yes, 
it's a giant language calculator and if and in a multi-language calculator yeah. with emojis and everything that's actually quite a powerful tool yeah. to help soften the edges around human computer interaction i love it you know seth thanks so much for talking to me about this you've really helped me you've given me some new language today to think about how we use these tools and what they're going to be good for i really appreciate that yeah and look, look i'll be honest with you just like the one guy on the airplane when the internet first came out. Yeah. On the, remember that? Yeah, yeah. And then not five minutes later, he was upset that it was too slow. Because it was broken. People yeah. are going to think that your experiences are fundamentally broken if you do not start incorporating the softening of the human-computer interaction edges with AI. So it is worthwhile. Like, put time into it. It's worth a skill to pick up for a bunch of different things for you. Just don't misuse it. Correct. And uh, pay close attention. Seth Juarez, always fun to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, we'll talk soon. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio.